Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week's episode continues my series of interviewing my professors and advisors from MICA during the month of June who have helped shape my thesis project and this podcast in some way. And this week's episode is a really interesting conversation with my critical theory professor, Ian Borland. In addition to teaching in MICA's art history department, Ian is also an art critic and a writer whose work focuses primarily on photography, the diaspora, and the global contemporary. This conversation is really, really fascinating and a a pretty deep conversation, I think. We start talking a little bit about Ian's background and his interest in art before moving into a sort of philosophical discussion on the importance of criticism and its role in the art world, as well as what a design criticism could look like and how to think about our role as designers in the larger cultural system. I learned so much from Ian's class and was introduced to readings from philosophers and critics and theorists who have really influenced my understanding of criticism and shaped a lot of my thoughts about how we talk about design. So many of the ideas that I've put forth in this podcast could be traced back to something that we talked about in Ian's class. So I think you'll really enjoy this one. Here is my conversation with Ian Borland. or so, but I actually don't have any idea of how you got into all of this or, or where where this started, and so I thought that would be a good way to just frame this discussion is a little bit of your background, and, um, you know, I get, or I guess let's start, would you call yourself an art critic? Is that kind of when you introduce yourself? Yeah, I, which is, I, that's how I would describe myself, that I always make, give the caveat that it's kind of a silly job to have or okay. a really like frivolous thing I get to do with my life right. because, I mean, to the extent that there was ever like a golden age of criticism, which I would say would be intellectually the 30s, 40s, yeah, 50s, yeah. and then, you know, the, the profession of criticism across fields, film, literature, so on, really the 60s, maybe through 80s at the tail end, but I think it's been a real sort of service economy, almost advertorial sort of thing in the last 20 years, right. and just like full-time academic jobs, the pathways to becoming a, a sort of tenured critic, so to speak, I mean, they, it's basically non-existent, and it's not yeah. like you're the, the cub reporter at, you know, the Sacramento Bee working on the, the film beat or whatever, that just right. doesn't exist really right. in the same way, so I never thought I would be an art critic, but my background <coughs> is actually, um, uh, I, I went to school around here, I went to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, and I thought oh, okay. I was going to be a diplomat, and... Look, I graduated, uh, you know, right at the beginning of George Bush's second term. Okay. And, you know, I've periodically considered, you know, going back to that world, but, you know, it's not looking like a great time to be in the State Department now. So right. yeah, I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> right. um, but my thought was always that I, I, I should be a, a critically engaged person in the world and I should do something with, you know, if it's not overtly service-oriented, there should be some something beyond the aesthetic or um thinking about questions of beauty or enjoyment or, or profit margins yeah. and things of that nature. Um, I, I actually had basically no art historical background at all when I was in college, but D.C. is a place of free museums, and I was, right. I was a kid from the mountains, and I, I went up to New York all the time, and I thought, man, if I have to have a job, I, I want it to be surrounded by this stuff. This is yeah. what I want to think about all the time, and it won't feel like work that way. So I was very fortunate to get into <coughs> a Ph.D. program at Chicago, which is sort of legendary for being, um, you know, they're, they're there are lots of mottos, like where fun goes to die, um, where the only thing that goes down on you is your GPA, um, and that all is well and good in uh, practice, but how does it work in theory, right? Yeah. So it's that kind of intellectual environment that is so ivory tower that it's a place where criticism is taken very seriously, and hermeneutics is taken very seriously, um, and I don't think I looked at much art while I was there, and so as a sort of antidote to that, I thought, well, you know, where can I go and sort of apply some of these ideas? So I, after a couple of years of coursework, I left Chicago, which has a great scene, but I moved to New York and I had some, uh, basically some, a couple good, you know, knock on door kind of connections, just total okay. cold call pitching uh, from friends of friends of friends um, from Chicago. And these people, to their credit, they sat down with me, they gave me some advice and they said, okay, if you're doing something interesting, you know, give us a pitch and we'll let you publish something really short maybe. And this was uh, at Art Forum initially. Okay. 
and um, it, I, I kind of just proved myself over a couple of years and then just took on assignments, whatever they gave me, little by little. Um, and, you know, from there, I sort of set my own agenda and built out a portfolio of criticism over the years, and it's been about 10 years now. Um, and I'm, I'm really writing for some of the venues that I want to be writing for and uh, on the topics that I want to be writing on. And that has, that that's, uh, sort of spirals in its own yeah. way, too. Then I start getting calls from museums to do catalog work, and then you kind of get a, a specialization or a reputation. So that's how I, I landed here. Um, I'm, I'm trained as a historian. Um, you can't really pay the bills being an art critic, but right. um, as uh, as one of my first editors at Art Forum said, though, you're not going to make your living off of this, but you can certainly buy your wife a nice bottle of wine from time to time. So, okay. Yeah. N nice. Yeah, yeah. So I, it's interesting to me that, you know, the way you kind of tell that story that you kind of just fell into this and it seems like a pretty sharp turn from mm -hmm. being a diplomat. What was it? about art, you know, when you're, I guess you're in college, so, yeah. you know, 18, 19, 20, you know, kind of going from something of, you know, being a diplomat, public servant to where, where does the art kind of come into your world? Yeah. I, I guess the other sort of parallel career I was thinking of was being an anthropologist, which really rhymes okay. with, uh, yeah. with, okay. with foreign service. It's the same logic of sense. being like yeah. the kind of guy in the pith helmet overseas yeah. uh, in the kind of traditional way. And I, I really, a lot of my background in, in being critical and having Marxist theory comes from a really rigorous education with some brilliant people at Georgetown in anthropology. But again, I, I looked at I looked at it, uh, how do I get an anthropology PhD at somewhere like Chicago or Yale or NYU, and really it looked like I was going to have to do this kind of you know you know uh, David Livingston kind of thing where I go out into right. the field and you know take notes on on some poor people who never see me again. I make my anthropological career off of them, and it felt incredibly neo-colonial. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have total respect for the discipline of anthropology, but if, if you know anthropology, it's also a discipline that's perpetually sort of looking in on itself in kind of crisis. And right. so I thought, okay, what is, I don't want to instrumentalize people in this ethnographic sort of way. And I'm not saying that's what anthropologists do, but it, it's a version of that, especially in places like Africa. Mm -hmm. um, so what is, it, what is it that I'm interested in? I, I like the historical side. I like the material culture and visual right. culture side and the lived experience, particularly of, of cities and the kind of texture of cities and so forth. So... I thought, okay, what's another pathway to me, you know, spending my time like in Lagos or mm -hmm. Johannesburg or something. And um, I thought, you know, worst case, I end up working in an art museum or something. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. That, that actually raises a question that I wanted yeah. to ask you about that was kind of based a little bit based on, on the class that I took with you. And I was, I was interested in, and, and you just mentioned, you know, that you're, you say that you're kind of trained as a historian and something I've been thinking about a lot lately is kind of the difference and overlap between um, both art and design, history and criticism. And I don't know, I, I don't know exactly what my question is, yeah. but how do you kind of see that, you know, the differences between being an art historian or being an art critic? Yeah. I mean, so there are a lot of ways to think about this. I, I think and within these the, the, those disciplines themselves, there's a lot of kind of turf guarding as well. I think that um, historians famously they talk about the contemporary, but they wonder what contemporary art history means because if it's so recent right. that you don't have a kind of historical like, like a parallax or a kind of distance on it, then how can you actually be doing history if you're if you are a, an informant in the history you're trying to tell or if it's within the recent memory of you know oral oh, history yeah. or whatever? Yeah. So historians tend to put up on these kind of false uh, frameworks to give a, a sense of distancing, right? And so what it used to be was contemporary art was after 1945, and then it was after 1960. Now some people are saying it's after 1980. So the goalposts kind of shift on what the contemporary is, and there's this whole debate in the field of, is the contemporary something that can be theorized? And people like David Joslin and Terry oh, yeah. Smith say, yeah, it can be theorized. It's about certain concerns that were not intrinsic to like the modernist discourse. Right. On the other hand, some people say it's just whatever kind of 20 or 30 year time period you're in, and that ultra-contemporary is maybe, well, you can be a historian by taking those objects and doing a kind of deep historical work, right? Tracing, right. you know, um, like in a kind of Foucauldian sense, like sort of genealogy backwards. Like, what is this oh, right. unearthing, right? Mm -hmm. So a kind of deep sedimentary dig. And that's the kind of historical labor on contemporary art. Um, otherwise, if it's a kind of direct response or a kind of positioning relative to other contemporary artifacts, then it's a kind of criticism. And this boundary is placed in subtle and unsubtle ways. Um, there's a famous, uh, I mean, who knows, maybe apocryphal anecdote that um, 
uh, Richard Meyer, the, the uh, historian, tells about when Rosalind Krauss, who's you know this yeah. kind of, you know grand dame of the field in Columbia, when she was writing her dissertation back in the 1960s, and she really wanted to write, write about the sculptor David Smith, um, who at that point was not dead, and okay. then he dies, of course, prematurely. And you know the story goes, she was then able to write her dissertation about a guy who oh. she wasn't allowed to write about a week before, right? Right. And which speaks to you know it's this wonderful sort of historical anecdote. It gives a lot of texture to the people involved, but you know it also it shows sort of the arbitrariness of like what is the contemporary, what is criticism versus history, and that it's we have to sort of police those boundaries. My personal answer would be that. I think the work of the historian is much slower than that of the critic. So okay. um, what a historian does is they're able to take a beat and not respond, but able to they're able to maybe to sort of cogitate a little more with the aid of both deep historical hindsight, but also the help of, of things like archives, for example, right. that are really spatially and temporally sort of set off from the work a critic can do. I can go to New York and see 20 shows and write some pieces about them, and that counts as criticism, and it might even have some history involved, but history, at its best, I think, takes more time, where I have to arrange a visit to an archive, and it might take me six months to get there, and then a few months in the archive, yeah. and then those materials, those are the kinds of things that just are <coughs> only accessible when you have this sort of, I mean, I would call it a real luxury, um, and so I would say it's a, I would separate it by chronology, but also by duration. The yeah, work of the critic is to position things, the work of the historian is to sort of do this more like a paleontologist with a toothbrush. Right. And that's a, a, a kind of labor that's very time intensive. That, yeah. That, okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. I have one other question about your yeah. background before we kind of move on to, to kind of your current work. And, and as I was, I was on your website this week, kind of just refamiliarizing myself with some of your work. And I saw on your resume that your, your graduate studies, you focused on urban studies and architecture, or that was a part of your concentration? Yeah, I really thought I was, um, what I what I loved, again, when I, was, when I was doing this anthropological work as an undergrad, I really thought I would be, I was really taken with cities, um, partially okay. because I grew up in the West, where I had an abundance of this kind of sublime desert, and I was oh, yeah. really interested in the urban, and in the cities of the world, and the, the you know, like, uh, uh, Mike Davis's studies of mega cities, oh, yeah. and so that was all very sort of intoxicating to me, and I really wanted to see the world through that lens. And I thought I would, I would, I thought I would be an urban anthropologist. I either wanted to be, a, you know, an embassies in these cities, or to be a sort of anthropologist of those cities. Oh, so I loved studies of like Brazil as a city of walls, or my advisor worked on the Roma transnational populations in Europe, and so on. So um, I, that was a lot of my theoretical interest. People like Henri Lefebvre, Michel de Certeau, and. Right. Uh, situationist international, those kinds of <laughs> radical spatial practices. And then when I got to Chicago, they have a great uh, geography department. And so then I'm reading you know, Jane Jacobs and Edward oh, right. Soja and right. Manuel Castells. Right. And so kind of the, the classics. And um, they have you know, great architecture faculty there. So that, And Chicago is a great architecture city. And I actually yeah. wrote my master's uh, on uh, sort of the art historical absorption of graffiti in the 1980s. Oh, as a fine art form. Yeah. And I've huh. continued to work with graffiti writers and street artists, um, sort of, I wouldn't say pseudonymously, but maybe more anonymously as a kind right. of sideline, um, just because it's not in the that. main line of my work. But yeah, I'm, I'm interested in what happens on city walls and sort of the accretion of visual culture in cities and yeah. how the built environment has changed pretty radically, even in our lifetime, you know. Yeah. I want to talk, I, I have a question that I don't, I don't want this to sound overly simplistic or formulaic, but I'm really interested in you know, basically your, your writing process or your, your process of critique. Um, and so that's, you know, everything from, are you pitching what you want to write about? Are editors asking you to write about things? Research? Do you go visit things? Like just what does that look like when you're kind of working on, on a, on a piece? Yeah. And so, you know, the myth of academia is that you are sort of free to be with your thoughts and, and do whatever you want. And right. that's, that's fundamentally not true. Academia, like any other branch of the neoliberal economy, is increasingly specialized division of labor. Yeah. It's incredibly competitive. I mean, this is just true of the entire economy. And so you gain the ability to do that which you love by having this, uh, sort of very specialized skill sets. And then also being, in some ways, you know, mercenary and being able to be adaptable. So I've always... I Ideologically, I'm, I'm very left Marxist, but I'm also deeply aware that... Um, there's a system that we inhabit and, you know, publications have to get ad revenues. 
Um, you know, one of my favorite publications to write for. I think the best art magazine in the world is Freeze. Oh, yeah. But Freeze also has this massive art festival that in, in the New York, it, this fair was, you know, a few weeks ago. And right. it's this whole, you know, massive kind of carnival of, of, yeah. of capitalist, you know, art selling. and But it's also a place of ideas and of, of fascinating intersections of, of, of new forms. And they, you know, bring in people from these galleries from Eastern Europe and so on. So they, they're... They're progressive in that way, but that's what funds this incredible writing in the pages right. of the magazine. So, all of which is to say that you kind of have to follow the money on some level. It's very rare to be like a Jerry Saltz who can right. essentially write, you know. And with all respect to someone like Peter Sheldahl or, or Jerry yeah. Saltz, they too are writing for their audience, which by and large is kind of conservative, middle brow. It's like, yeah, the Robert Rauschenberg show right now is, is amazing, but, you know, do we need another, how many, you know, reviews of MoMA shows do we need? Right. right, and so that's every publication has its audience. Every critic has their audience, who essentially pays their bills. And so, the short version is you you write what you are commissioned to write, um, and that's yeah. maybe not the same, the kind of sexy ideological version of criticism. So, in that way, I think of myself always as a professional writer first and foremost. And a professional writer is always able to adapt to house voice and house style. So, okay. um, in, in that regard, I don't know if I have a clear voice as a critic in terms of the word on the page. My, I, I think of myself as someone who's able to adapt to the needs of whatever the publication is. And so if I'm writing for art form, it's often we want you to go see the show and they tend to pitch me shows they know that I have a kind of interest in because okay. that is synergistic. Right. Other times I'll pitch them shows. Other times earlier they just needed coverage. And so you, I, my commitment there was always to have an open mind and look at things inductively. You know, the old critical mode often was to be more deductive, say, here's my framework. Right. And, you know, like Marxist right. criticism or like a lot of left literary criticism was, I'm, I have my critical frame and I'm going to evaluate things on the basis of that critical frame. And I think particularly starting out and particularly working for publications, you have to be much more ground up. And um, as the historian Ann Wagner said, you know, have a science for every object in a sense and kind of build uh, your framework yeah, out of yeah. the object. Which isn't as ideologically pure, but it's um, it's much more adaptive, and um, in this economy, that's maybe what's needed. The good news is, you that's know, the, the older you get, and the more latitude you get with editors, you can say a little more. Okay, I want to write about this, and I'm going to take a critical edge on it, and that's you know, I'm writing about some shows of, of black art in New York right now, and um, they are frankly more critical. It's not it's less description and okay. more analysis, and but you sort of have to work up to that. Um, so that's kind of part one of the answer, just the, the needs of the market and the realities of the market, right. honestly. Because sometimes you write what you want to write and the editor says, this isn't going to fly for X, Y, okay. Z reason. That, yeah. Either this isn't the tone of the piece, this isn't, this doesn't mesh with our needs overall, the kind of portfolio reviews we're doing, we don't agree with what you're saying, you know, all these issues. Interesting. Um, yeah. And then we could do sort of a follow-up. I mean, if I'm, if I, if I have a kind of tabula rasa, if I can write whatever I want, you know, then I approach things a little differently. This raises a couple questions for me. And the first one is, is you mentioned that sometimes you'll get asked to write about a show just because it needs yeah. coverage. And sometimes they're a little more critical. And I yeah. imagine there's these kind of, you know, dials that you're turning where you're turning up. This is, you know, just to kind of say that this show exists or yeah. this is to give your opinion on that. How do you kind of work out or, or parse through that, and how much of that is just based on, you know, the publication or your editor? Yeah, it usually depends on the section of the publication. Um, there is something that I write for a lot, which is, you know, very brief little picks in art forum on the website called Critics Picks, and these tend to be positive, right? Okay. You're, you're writing on something that you want people to see for right. whatever reason, and so you're not going to, it's not a, a think piece of like right. a thousand words or whatever. And I would say in the main, most, what passes for criticism now, but, you know, if you think about it in any field, it tends to be richly descriptive. You know, the critic shows up and they say, this is what you can expect. Right. Here's what's kind of interesting. Here's what's a little less interesting. And it's it's not even the kind of Siskel and Eber model of thumbs up or thumbs down. It's not even this kind of valuation. It's literally just a, a sort of description. And I think that, you know, on one level, if you have practice and you know what to look for, um, one develops a facility with that. But I also don't think you have to be especially well-trained, you know, you can, you know, you don't have to have a, like a doctorate in history to do that. Yeah. Kind of work. That's a, that's more of training the facility of the eye and in writing it concisely, right? Writing to a deadline in few right. words. So I think what becomes more interesting is, is being invited to write, you know, the 800 word piece, the 2000 word piece where the editor says this can be a think piece or it can be, you know, not a 
positive pick, but a really robust print review. Um, and you know, at that point, I started thinking, okay, what what is the sort of totality of this thing? I would say that um, in those instances. I'm just going to be precise about this. Um, again, I think my method is always inductive. I try to figure out what the artist is up to, where they're showing, and what's sort of happening proximal yeah, to that, yeah. and, and be actually descriptive. To use case studies, um, to to look at the work itself, and you know, start from the object and, and build out from there, um, and then what's the next role of the critic? I, I think some critics who aren't overtly ideological that I like are generous to the reader by putting things in a kind of broad and deep context to give them a framework for understanding it. Because there's the initial encounter with the thing, and one can have a set of emotional or kind of visceral right, reactions. Right. And maybe the work of the critic is to say, all right, well, here's what this is in dialogue with. Here's a little bit of historical precedent that this isn't a lineage yeah, with. Yeah. And in that effect, they're doing a kind of service to the audience, but also a first draft of history, right? A next level of criticism would be then maybe to, if you're writing, getting the real think piece. You know, you're pitching Art in America or something. You're like, I want... 2,000 words to write about, you know, or you might see this in juxtaposed or something. What is happening in the art world? And this is, yeah. like, critics who've been looking through their notebook for a year or two and they say, okay, there's this new tendency. And this is where you get a lot of like, the great isms, right? Right, yeah, right. yeah. Um, and you look back at the dustbin of history and, you know, think about minimalism, right? We call it minimalism now and that's even kind of a bad term for it. It's really a bunch of specific practices by a bunch of guys in the 60s, mostly guys. And um, but at the time, they were calling it, you know, parameter structures, right. ABC right. art, and, and so it's critics who are doing that first draft of things, and only in historical retrospect do they, do they catch on. But, you know, as a critic, you're trying to do a kind of synthetic labor, mm -hmm. uh, a kind of diagnostic. Yeah. So that's, that's another level. And then finally, you might add this kind of ideological lens, and that used to be really Marxist, honestly. Um, and if you were a more conservative critic, it might be towing the line on, on aestheticism in a lot of ways. Right. Right. Okay, this this abstract work is garbage. It's not traditional, right? And a, a kind of reactionary counter-modernism. Right. Um, and then in, in the 80s, you know, thinking about Barbara Rose and uh, Hilton Kramer uh, sort of holding the modernist line against the postmodernist, yeah. the kind of David uh, Douglas Crimps of the world and uh, Craig Owens is. Right. And, and now it's, I would say every... Most critics that I sort of know and respect and who have these kind of, you know, great jobs, they tend to be schooled in this Marxist multiculturalist framework. And But the criticism, they tend to support work that is broadly global, broadly left-leaning. That's the flavor of the art world. It's, we would yeah. call the art world conservative, precisely, even though it is very capitalist. So right. the question is, that's everyone's assumption, but everyone's also participating in this kind of neoliberal system is there any room for critical purchase? And I, I think the way that I resolve that in my own work is um, if I were to write a sort of critic statement, I, I use my relative position of power, having a, a base of institutional support at MICA, writing for big publications, to bring front and center artists who have been either by dint of who they are or by dint of what they make historically marginalized okay. and, and are maybe even relatively more marginalized right. now. So a lot of people say, why do you work on a lot of diaspora? <coughs> That's not your, your sort of personal background. And I say, well, I mean, what can I do? Like, yes, I'm, I'm a white man who, you know, went to great schools and right, so on. I have, right. I have a remarkable position of privilege. Do I really need to be, like, writing about, you know, like Christopher Wool or something? Yeah, yeah. Do we need yet another person doing that? And so so I, I don't think so. That, that ground is sufficiently right. covered. So as one critical gesture, it can be insisting on putting front and center queer artists, diaspora artists, women... Yeah. Uh, people from emerging markets and emerging countries and so on. So, and then secondarily, there's the the internal dialogues. I, I have a review coming out on Kevin Beasley, for example, who's a very important younger artist now, and his work is is polarizing in some ways. So then the question is, how do you parse sort of the internal debates within you know diaspora right. theory? And that takes a lot of sort of theoretical uh, awareness that goes beyond just description. Yeah. So, um, so that, that's working on maybe you know four or five different layers and it, you just use the tools that yeah yeah something that you said that I thought was was really interesting um, that really relates to a lot of why I feel like I've been doing this project for mm -hmm. the last year is that I feel like a lot of design criticism is a very kind of formalist critique it's mm -hmm. very much a um, and anyone who has listened to any other episode of this has heard me give this example, but it's, you know, a company redesigns their logo mm -hmm. and the, the critique of it is, is 
here's the old logo, here's the new logo, let's compare them. And then that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I think, is good. Like, I think that that's a, you know, a worthy discussion, but it feels like it's missing a, a deeper level of, well, why did the why did this company feel that they needed to rebrand themselves or make themselves look different now? What is the, you know, cultural, economic, political things happening around mm-hmm. this entity that would make them feel that they need to kind of change their, you know, their point of view? And it's interesting to me that, you know, you're kind of saying that even a lot of art criticism today often kind of stops mm-hmm. at that. Um mm-hmm. So I don't know if I have a question there other than just kind of responding to that that, that you said. Do you have any yeah, any uh, thoughts on that? You know, it's funny, this idea of design criticism. I don't, I don't really know people who call themselves design critics. I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of that critical work happens within the context of the industry itself. Yeah, yeah. Or within its the institutions that train people going into the industry. So um, I, I think it's, on the flip side, art critics, the most people that I know, or film critics, these are people who at least have this romantic uh, notion that they are somehow outside of the system. Yeah. Even slightly, you know, even if it's this Clement Greenberg umbilical cord of gold. Um, So there's a sense of, they don't see themselves as artists critiquing their peers in the sense of of criticism, like an MFA program. It's criticism as its own vocation. And in a post-Greenbergian way, criticism as a complementary or dialogic vocation to abet and improve the work of artists, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think literary critics often feel the same way. So I think it's just the nature of, Criticism itself, a different standard, not a standard of professionalism, but a different self-identification. So I, I think that's certainly part of it. On the other hand, uh, one thing I, I do find fascinating is that the art world itself is so um, reliant on good design. I mean, if, if we're talking about what is the contemporary, the, uh, you know, um, I, I think you and I have talked about this um, brilliant piece on the Airbnb aesthetic, yeah, or yeah. sort of the Web 2.0 yeah. aesthetic, that basically... That aesthetic is essentially the the visual linga franca of you know when Shane Smith from Vice called Brooklyn a, right. a brand right 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 like the, the, the amazing graphic design of the last and product design to some extent over the last ten years those things are coterminous in my mind and I think that there's a reason that contemporary art is sexy if you're a tourist from another country or you're a young high school or whatever yeah. it's not because you love like baroque painting it's that you love the sexiness of the entire proposition right right and. Um, that becomes pretty dangerous ground because I think most contemporary artists who are doing well tend towards a kind of radical left critique, but they do have to prosper within a global gallery and biennial system that is frankly homogenizing and corporatist, especially if you believe someone like Julian Stalabras or Louis Guibé and folks like that. Yeah. And then beyond that, there's this amazing layer of industrial, architectural product and graphic design that becomes the actual sort of substrate or medium in which all that art is displayed and people consume it, right? right? So, for example, I think the Whitney Museum, it used to be this brutalist, literally a fortress, like a bank vault on the Upper yeah. East Side during like the sort of battle days of New York, and it's been repurposed ironically as like what a, what a brutalist icon is the Breuer, you know? But as right. the Whitney moves downtown, that also corresponds to the High Line and the Standard Hotel and um, sort of that, you know, the great Jay McInerney piece from the early 90s about the, the, the center of gravity moving from uptown to downtown. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all of a piece, but I think what strikes me most about the Whitney is it's incredible graphic design. Yeah, right? Is yeah. that the bottle you have on the yeah, table right yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. Like I have, I have a, I have a like a hipster tank top that I, you know, I wear to the climbing gym. You know, it's just right. they have. I, I get my my mailings from them from their press office, and I'm like, oh, another press office, uh, you know, injunction yeah. to cover their work for a magazine. And it's like I just like to to look at it, right? And I think there is, it is the kind of um, it's the air that the art world breathes is incredible design and that's what makes it viable in many ways so it's ironic that I think a lot of critics are bound up in that and they actually probably at least subconsciously get a sense of satisfaction or self-worth for the occupy kind of transnational bohemian aesthetic and they don't talk about it explicitly right I'm going to kind of parse this out a little bit but that kind of first piece you were talking about I'm going back a little bit about a lot of design criticism happening within the field where where art criticism there's a certain sense of remove and and that is a big that has been a kind of big debate in in graphic design for you know 25 years or so now 30 years Mm -hmm. about uh can there be a sustainable critical discourse that is not compromised by writing that's also by practicing designers Mm -hmm. so you know i even think about that for me and doing these interviews but i'm also a practicing designer Mm -hmm. 
and I'm talking about other designers' work. And I interviewed the designers of the Whitney branding, and I worked at the Whitney for a summer. Uh, and then I'm, you know, sitting here kind of critiquing it. Is can you have that kind of impartiality to it? And is that even important? And then the second part, and this is a little bit different, um, but I think you were starting to hit on it, is that, you know, graphic design, I talked to um, Michael Rock, who's a designer in New York and, and writes a lot about design, and he quoted uh, Mark Wigley, the architect, who I've also quoted a lot, who uh, says that the whole the whole globe has been encrusted with this geological layer of design that you actually can't escape yeah. the effects of design, and, you know, us sitting in this room, there is graphic design in every direction that we look. And that because of that, all of those artifacts can tell us things about their creator, about their culture. You know, we can look at them as artifacts, but we can also look at them in an anthropo anthropological sense also. Yeah. And I think this is where a lot of the fields of... Um you, I think you'll you hear a lot of the shift, um, particularly in a world like after like Tom Mitchell and you know, work by Jim Elkins and many others, the shift from art critical discourse to the the theory of visual culture, yeah, right? And yeah, visual cultural yeah. studies. And I think everyone is is realizing that the, this false sort of binary between art and design is just BS, right? We can't, right. and right. there's a, a confluence and a relay between all these things. But I hear in your questions essentially, um, can can design be thought about in, in ways that I think we were talking about before, these different lenses you might have yeah. traditionally applied to art. So one might be to just do that kind of genealogical work or anthropological work, just to think about it as a material or cultural artifact and think about what its sort of rich histories are, what it's in, in dialogue with, the kinds of meanings that it, it relies on, what it how it operates in an economy of signs, and just importing those tools. And I think the answer is obviously yes. Um, right. Secondarily, though, you're wondering, can one ever be impartial? And to that, I would say, um, you know, one of the great lessons I think of, you know, that great sort of um, hand wringing within the field of anthropology is that you can never separate participant from observer, right? We mm. actually, no one's ever going to be right. uh, objective. There is no outside, and that's another one of my favorite of Foucault's insights. So you're always inside, you're always the product of the various force relations of your society and, and the power structures you're in. That's great, you just have to acknowledge that. But more deeply in your question, I'm hearing, can can there be, if if design historians are primarily designers, can there ever be a truly critical edge applied? Right, right, and exactly. I, and I think there it becomes a question of, well, what kinds of questions are you asking? We've become so conditioned, um, I think, if you can comp lit, our history, visual studies, to be, um, to take a lot of lessons from, you know, psychoanalysis, always looking for blind spots and repression or, uh, you know, Marxist theories of neoliberalism, yeah, yeah. Harvey and so on. And the, the question there is always... You know, where's the power? Where's the money? Where's the where's the the hegemonic sort of repression of right. subaltern groups and so forth? And I, to some extent, I and mean, this might be painting with a broad brush, but my feeling is, for people who make their bread and butter off of practice explicitly and don't have at least the the sort of cover of this, the idea that the you know the contemporary artist often feels herself to be working outside of the system mm -hmm. when in fact they're they're complexly imbricated within it, right? Which right. has created all kinds of problems for for modernism. And, um, but designers are just explicitly within that system. And designers, most of them that I know, make no bones about saying, oh, I don't want to take the teaching job because I can make a, a yeah. good living not taking right. the teaching job, what have you. You know, for academics, that's not really an option. Like I said, you can't make your living really being an art critic. Right. So you get to, you have this privilege of, of being both inside and outside, like kind of like a Mobius strip yeah. at all yeah. times. You know, you're, you're in it, you're not, you're not, but there's not really a clear line. So we're able to ask questions that might be uncomfortable for practitioners. So for one, I, I would say to my designer friends, like, okay, so you, you've made this beautiful thing. You've made this beautiful redesign for whatever product or institution. And that makes me incredibly happy because I, I'm a sort of Bauhausian at heart. I, I think right. the world becomes better through good design. And I look back at my poor parents who lived in a, a world that was looked pretty shitty, to be honest. Yeah. And I don't know if it just means that it's the kind of narcotic effect of going into Whole Foods where we believe the world is better and it's not. Right. Or maybe right. it is making the world better in some way. But either way, my lived experience is of a better world, right? Right. So as long as we're sort of critically aware of that, you know what I mean? It's like I go to Whole Foods and I leave and I'm like, I've, I've spent twice as much money, but I feel good, you know? And maybe right. that's terrifying. But but the, the design has had an effect on me. So the, the question then becomes, okay, I look at the good design and I say, you've, you've, you've designed this wonderful thing. You've made my world better. You've made my experience of consumption in this neoliberal hell that we inhabit much more appealing. However, 
you know, is that a good thing? And, right. and I think that's what I'm hearing in your question. Right. And can designers ask themselves that question? Do they have the critical tools to say, are we just abetting a, a certain, well, kind of like ruthless Silicon Valley capitalism yeah. to think about Airbnb yeah. or Uber? These are like rapacious places in some ways who have completely disrupted and destroyed, you know, many kinds of industries. Amazon is going to like take over the world at some point. And it's just such a beautifully, like the, the, the UI yeah. is, if not satisfying, it's, it's, it's effective. Right. And so it, I just, it's easier for me to, to, I enjoy that experience. So can you ask yourselves critically, like, are you abetting a kind of race to the bottom capitalism and making it easier? Uh, you know, and yeah. that's what I wonder. Yeah. You know? I mean, so the I, I would say the text in your class that really kind of deeply influenced me the most was was that I think I mentioned this to you before was the Althusser ideology, and and he has this line, and you know your ideology doesn't kind of obscure you from reality or you know your kind of biases, but they actually make new realities, and and the reason that that kind of got me so much is that I that so much of that building of new reality ideologies turning into reality happens through the designed mm -hmm. and built environment. And so um, I, I feel like I've kind of come to this, I feel like when I kind of started this, I just had this loose sense that something's missing in design criticism. We need more design criticism. We need to be talking about these things in a deeper level. And that's something that I feel like I've hit on that's, that's oh, you know, what what ideology does does this you know, museum redesign, reinforce, or does this building uh, kind of impose on its surroundings? And I, I, it's very easy for me to, to go down that rabbit hole or to, you know, use Amazon or Google. You know, you know, Google has this material design system for their phones. What is that? What ideologies is that promoting and how they want us to interact with each other and interact with their devices? And I, I feel like I sometimes often skew in the last couple of months, very much into that. Mm -hmm. But then how, how do you then bring in the aesthetic? Um, you know, how do those things actually start to, to talk to each other? Mm -hmm. Do you know well, what I'm... Yeah, I, I, I think I do. And if I don't, we can just kind of right. correct here. I mean, mm -hmm. and so to, just as a, an aside to your first sort of prompt, I, I think it's okay. Part of the reason we go to grad school, right, is because we have a chance to really sit with a set of high-level tools. Right. You know, um, I, you know, when I was in Chicago, we, we talked a lot about this idea of they have a they have a, a, a very in some ways traditional core curriculum for their first couple of years, because the logic is you have to kind of learn your scales before you improvise. Yeah. You have to you have to you have to build the world before you can destroy that world with critical right, theory, right? right? And so this is why we, we we do grad school or we do things like the Whitney Independent Study Program, and I think that it's good to go to grad schools that balance those things: those the aesthetic, the technical, and the critical yeah. sort of hand in glove. And so I'd say the first step is to. Make sure that designers and practitioners have all of those tools so that you're always interrogating your own process. The, the authors are right. suggesting you bring up is this Marx's idea of synchronic reproduction. Ideology produces subjects. Not, and this is what authors are brought, not just culture, but, but people, right? And right. It, it, it makes your, your psyche. You know, he was a Lacanian in many ways. So it produces you, ideology, and you in turn produce the, the cultural systems that then produce the next generations mm -hmm. of that ideology. And it's, it's very good at reproducing itself like a virus, right? right. And so the, the question for his you know, famous sort of student, Foucault, becomes, is there ever freedom in that world? Right. And I think Foucault is very pessimistic in many ways because the kind of carceral systems and the ways that we police ourselves are so powerful. But Foucault was also, he thought we could have these moments of freedom in our own sort of constant questioning and self-awareness. And also in small moments of transgression and freedom. So to what degree can designers, armed with those tools, create little moments of, of, of breakage or interruption in that process or even yeah. subvert that, that those systems? Then, then the question is, okay, if you get that amazing gig where you're doing like UI for, for Airbnb or Google, which is going to pay your student loans and give you this like wonderful life in California or New York, right. you're probably not going to say no to that. So then it gets to a different set of ideologies. I think a lot of designers I know, they're satisfied with the, the quality of their work and users are satisfied with the beauty of their design. It's that right. kind of old, like, post-Adolf Luce sort of functionalism. Yeah, yeah. And there ain't nothing wrong with that, you know? Right, <laughs> like, right. On some level. I mean, I think the world is, in some ways, a more enriched place for that. If you are a hardcore Marxist, you would say, okay, we're kind of greasing the wheels for ideology. If you believe that... That's what those companies are doing. A lot of the people, the true believers of those companies are saying, we're making the world like fundamentally a better place. Yeah. 
but that's you have to answer those questions at the moment they arise in every instance. And I think that's where having a kind of critical tool set is, is helpful, right? Right. So this is a this is a question that I asked. I've asked everyone that I've talked to, and I'm and you know most of the people I talk to are kind of in and around design. So they're either practitioners or they they write about design or they're curators or educators or um, and I've talked to a lot of people around architecture also. Um, but I'm interested in in asking you this question as someone who is a little bit more removed from design. Um, I, I'm. I'm curious kind of what are the, and we've touched on this a little bit, but what are the uh, kind of issues or topics that you think as an outsider designer should be looking at around their work and around the kind of graphic design profession? I think that we live, we're living through a kind of remarkable golden age of design right now. I think we're going to look back and say, okay, there was a very clear sort of aesthetic and set of yeah. principles that reemerged in the last 10 or 15 years, and they were synonymous with a whole raft of what you can, it's good or bad. Either the world's become a much more integrated, interesting, fast, beautiful, weird, accessible place, or it's become a much more terribly homogenous place. You know, yeah. again, it's yeah. that Airbnb article again. Take your pick. Right. I, I like the fact that I can travel the world and stay in beautiful apartments and eat like bespoke food, and you know, right. that feels very good. And then I, until it doesn't feel good, and I feel tremendously guilty, right? right. And then, right. And then I, then the, the critical mind comes on, and I'm like, I'm doing this, but like, what else? Am I going to stay at an ugly hotel, or am I going to go to a restaurant that has a handwritten menu? Like, I mean, I'm not going right. to choose opt out of these things, right? And this is the great problem with the system we find ourselves in, right? Um, so I would say. And the questions are not, what should I be designing? Um, unless you're an architect. I mean, architects have this tremendous power to make spaces. You know, David Harvey wrote an amazing article called From Space to Place and Back Again, really about, you know, looking out the window of this office, thinking of, of Guilford and, and, and oh, okay. this defensible architecture, you know, to invoke the Met Breuer again. Yeah. Um, uh, literally, spaces of, of social exclusion, of apartheid, of racial segregation, and that's, you know, pardon me, that's fucked up, right? Right, so, right, yeah. And, and that comes out of a certain set of, of impulses as well. And right. Chicago is a great example of this as a city. So I would say that, you know, if you're if you're designing space, you have this amazing ability to bring people together or separate people. Mm -hmm. And this is an area where I think thinking about urban geography, social histories, I mean, that's just yeah. your due diligence. Um, but I would say, you know, for graphic designers and so forth, the greater risk is of complicity within uh, a larger system of, consumption right. and um, uh, you know something that, that my wife uh, who's a novelist you know writes about a lot or thinks about a lot is this problem of um, another Marxist issue this idea of, of um, commodity fetishism which is often taken right. to mean that we like buying things and we we fetishize the commodity but Marx meant it that commodities have this amazing power they become these richly laden talismanic objects that have the power to crystallize all kinds of invisible force relations and so we think about like a single garment, right? There are wonderful books written on this where you, uh, a Calvin Klein, you know, quote unquote t-shirt that's been stamped with that brand. That's the licensing of the brand, but that t-shirt has taken this incredible journey right. around the world that is right. invisible at the moment of buying it. And what you're buying is the semiotics of Calvin Klein, the white t-shirt or maybe the boxer briefs or whatever right. for your date or whatever. But what that product has done is crystallized all these invisible forces and all these invisible currents in the world <coughs> and actually hides them from us in many ways. Right. And, that, and that's commodity fetishism. And designers can be very complicit in that, not only in just participating in mm -hmm. opting out, but also in, uh, for instance, I, I think now, you know, this, the, the, the risk of social media and consumption is that I think in, you know, it, I think a lot of it started with, with, with Kiva, you know, where, you know, the micro lending and so forth and the kind of rise of organic foods yeah. and so forth. The yeah. sense that, you could essentially buy your way into being ethical. You could have luxurious, right. sumptuous right. products and sacrifice nothing. And you wouldn't have to feel guilty because you were buying things that were well-designed or you're buying, you know, shoes where like a dollar goes to a right. village right. or right. glasses, you know, or right. Parker right. goes to a village. And so you're getting good design. You're, you're helping all these millennial startups who are making money. A lot of these companies hand over fist. And you need to feel good too because it's well-designed and right. it's, 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 uh, it's, and, and you're buying your way to a kind of yeah. uh, freedom, in a sense, and buying your way to guilt instead of looking at the problem. And I think good design is often the camouflage or the cover. That's interesting. For, yeah. for that kind of consumerist uh, passive right. activism. It's, that, I think, a parallel to the idea of, oh, I signed a petition or like something on Facebook instead of going out and marching or right. calling right. a congressperson. Right. Um, so I think 
there, that's the insidious side, side of design. And so these are questions to be, designers might be asking themselves. And I think there are a deeper set of questions designers might be asking themselves. I mean, I, again, I don't know the demographics, but anecdotally, I feel like um, in terms of, of race, gender, socioeconomic origins, uh, design yeah. can be a, a somewhat homogenized field. Yeah. And so what would the field of design look like if we were to take these questions about hegemony, which feel very abstract in Gramsci and think about, so hegemonically, certain groups of people have been structurally marginalized. So right. how do we undo that work? You know, and, and and bring people who might never make it into the uh, right. graphic design MFA. Right. What kind of would that be a kind of radical gesture? What would design look like then? If like, okay, instead of trying to think about you know designing a new like you know marketplace and condos in West Baltimore, what if we brought kids from West Baltimore up through a design school and gave them scholarships to you know RISD or right, whatever? Right. Right. What would the world of graphic design look like then? Right. And so oh, maybe, that's interesting. So maybe those kinds of questions yeah. that are not about these heady theoretical questions, but using those theoretical propositions to wonder about the lived choices you all make collectively. Right. Uh, yeah, that's great. I have I have one more kind of mm-hmm. big question, and I just have a couple you know small questions mm-hmm. just to wrap it up. Um, and we talk again. This is something that we touched on, but I just kind of want to talk a little bit more about this idea of audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I'm, so, so I, I kind of have a two part question. I'm interested in when you're writing. Are you thinking about audience? Do you have an ideal reader? Who are you writing for? Mm-hmm. And then kind of stepping back generally art criticism or we could even say design criticism who should that be for or who who are the consumers of that do you think um uh you know that's a two-part answer the, the the shortest version is i think that good writing is accessible and a lot of criticism and a lot of academic writing and history is laden with jargon yeah because again there's a crisis in academia about what is our value in society, especially in a more knowledge-open society, right? Right. So is our role facilitating, curating, guarding forms of esoteric knowledge? Um, that's an open question. And so I think a lot of academics, the knee-jerk reaction is to show their credentials and their right. value by making things really obscure. And I think, you know, traditionally, academia is very, very traditional. And to sort of earn your spurs and get the dissertation and then the first you know, few publications, you really have to be incredibly rigorous in, in writing ways that are often opaque. And my writing tends to, um, and hopefully my teaching style too, is to try to translate that into something right. a little more accessible. So ideally the audience is everybody. In point of fact, that's rarely the case, right? right. And so then the second part of the answer is, who, for whom are you writing as a kind of, um, what is the vehicle for your writing? So mm-hmm. my, when I write for a museum catalog, my presumption is that it will be it should be rigorous, but it's something that someone might, you know, take home for their kid in school, or they might yeah. give to their parent or something, yeah. or they might put it on their coffee table. So that sort of voicing is different than something for an academic journal or for um, uh, a, a, basically a trade magazine, something right. like, like an art forum or something. And so are you writing for your peers? Are you writing for a wide audience who might be buying the book? Are you? And then when you're on in an online platform writing for more of a, a guest blog or something, then you can really just be more colloquial even. And I, I think... I think writing with pretense is um, is bad writing, and I think yeah. and I think good writing is to be able to synthesize complex ideas and, and, and communicate them to people. So that's always the that's always the aim. But oftentimes the editorial line will push back against that and right. actually say, "Can you can you crack this up a little bit and make it sound a little more?" You know, oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And that depends on the editor and depends yeah. upon the you know. Right. Um, and other times, you know, you use a ten dollar word or you have a kind of right. rhetorical crutch, and your editor. I love writing for editors. That's the other thing in academia. Often we're writing on our own for oh, peer reviewers yeah. who are often anonymous. But, you know, I love magazine writing because you, the editor writes, a bit, writes back to you and says, this can lose 100 words. This is bloated. This doesn't do any work. You use this word three times. Right, you know, right. And, and that's wonderful. And I think I think editors are, are amazing. I, I love working with them. So um, now in terms of, of who should the audience for design criticism be, I mean, I, I think that it's such a practice-driven field. It's, it's got to be for... Practitioners and not academics would be my answer. Right. I, I don't know if there's a wide audience for design criticism, and part of that is because it's not as rarefied as you know. It's not like okay, there are museums on the other side of the world that I'm never going to see, but maybe I can read about them in the pages of, of Art in America, right, right? Or on the you know the Instagram feed of Beemore Arts or something, or Texts or Kunst. Design actually is something that everybody sees all the time. So your argument to people doesn't happen in the form of criticism; it happens in the form of your actual work. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah I feel like that's kind of a lot of where I've arrived over the last two years is, is, you know, 
the kind of tagline for this podcast, and I think I've mentioned this mm-hmm. to a couple people, is um, the intersection of criticism and practice. And I've started to realize that that word intersection is actually uh, almost a false mm-hmm. uh, divide. And that, you know, actually criticism and the things that we're making are actually very much connected. And the objects mm-hmm. and design process in and of itself is a form of criticism. Absolutely. And being, I would say, being uncritical and being purely aesthetic or formalist is an argument in and of itself. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're always making a kind of choice that's critical. Right. Um, So I think you're right. Yeah, it's maybe kind of a false distinction. I would, you know, add one more layer. I do think that if we think expand the idea to of what design criticism is to, um, you know, a school like Micah or RISD or, or Chicago or something where you have good graphic design programs and people are taking these classes in critical theory, um, that's, those, that emerges out of literary and art historical discourses, but I think it's really relevant for designers um, as practitioners in the sense of, um, well, maybe not just designers, but, but I mean everybody. I think not just designers taking those classes, but, but students of all stripes within an undergraduate or graduate program, because I think an, another goal that we have is not just for practitioners, but enhancing the visual literacy and critical literacy of, of everybody. So right. you as designers make things, but I also want to make sure that people who are not designers in the room are able to look at the things you make and decode what they are. Right. And, and I think this sort of semiotic turn that got a lot of flack in the early 80s with the pictures generation, part of what was brilliant in the early instances of someone like Richard Prince or Sherry Levine is that essentially what they were doing is they were, they were critiquing originality, but they are also subjecting everyday artifacts to repetition in a way that revealed the sort of source code. And so it might be that you are sort of subliminally flipping through magazines or walking past billboards and not even looking at them very critically. It's just right. the one piece of data. But once you see them repeated over and over again, you can start to see the late motifs and then wonder, okay, what is what is happening? What is this trying to do to me? Right. And so that kind of visual literacy that comes out of both visual cultural studies and design thinking, I, I think is, yeah, that's not d- design criticism written for an audience. That is design criticism built into a pedagogy for everybody. Because design yeah. mediates the world, right? Right. Yeah. That. I mean, I. That's exactly something that I've been kind of thinking about, and you just articulate that so much better than how I've been uh, trying to think about that for you know the last couple of months or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious about your kind of uh, consumption habits or your your mm-hmm. media diet because um, in you know being in your class for five months and kind of getting to know you. Um, seem very uh, aware of what's going on currently, but also very aware of history and well-read. And I'm just, how how are you kind of consuming all of this? I say to be a good writer, you have to be a, a voracious reader. And it's, you know, every writing coach says this, Stephen King says this. It's right. just, you know, when you know Stephen King writes two or three hours a day in a little room, and he's unsentimental about it. Yeah, and he does it every day. But the rest of the day, he just spends reading books, right? Right. right. Or, yeah. or, or, or editing. You're going to become a good writer. Edit someone else's work, and you'll see. Mm-hmm. You'll learn audience. You'll learn, you know, parallel construction problems. You'll see little ticks and you right. know, inefficiencies. So these are all just kind of writing and learning skills. That, and you know, people who who make things know if you draw something, you probably retain it better than looking at it. Right. So those are that's kind of. The general category. What, what do I read? Um, I, uh, I I still love international affairs and politics, so I, I, I read every morning. I do my newspaper of choice is the Guardian because okay. I like their international yeah. coverage. I like their their slant, but I know they are also literally pandering to me as an audience. Right, right. right. The editorials are not. I'm just like cheering them on. Right. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. Glad, I'm glad someone's saying that. I do a quick scan of Fox News and CNN just to get kind of what's happening in the main lines and bandwidth. Uh, a couple times a week, I check the opinion blogs like uh, like the Weekly Standard, which okay. is kind of the neocon conservative um, outlet, um, and maybe click on the Nation or Mother Jones just for like a gloss. Um, oh, interesting. And then um, I check New York Magazine twice a day because it's just my aggregator of choice. Different right. people have different aggregators. And then, of course, I'll, I'll check into something like TechCrunch or Wired a couple times a week as well oh, okay. just to get a sense of what's happening there. Um, and then there are a few countries I like to keep tabs on, like I'll see what's going on in, the, in like Le Mans or the French news, um, and in, uh, South Africa as well, which is a place okay. where I spend a lot of time. And so, um, that's probably about an hour every morning of just media consumption. Right. Um, with a couple refreshes throughout the day. I'm trying to get better at that. Um, and then I'm kind of always have 
a work of maybe contemporary theory and a work of, of old fiction or an old primary source open and then you know something fun like sci-fi or something right uh so i mean what am i reading right now um i'm reading huey copeland's book on um his sort of classic now book from a few years ago on slavery and contemporary art and huey copeland's a dean and professor at okay. northwestern who's you know increasingly just like kind of a legend in our field um and it's a great book uh and so I've got that. I'm rereading George Baker, who's a, a modernist at UCLA's uh, history oh, yeah. of, of the Dada object with Francis Picabia. Picabia yeah. is kind of, he had this big resurgence this year, and it's like, okay, time to look at this book again. Um, and, you know, the, art historically, I don't parse every word, but, you know, I, I kind of read sections as I need to, and then I come back to them over yeah. the years. Yeah. Um, I've got, uh, what else do I have? open right now. I'm, I'm reading the, the Golden Bowl by Henry James because it's one of those kind of arcane Victorian uh, uh, books yeah. that everyone says you have to read and I, I will finish it someday. So I'm trying to make my way through it. Um, right. Yeah. And so that's kind of, that's always sort of the rotation, but I, I, I probably read one way or another three or four hours a day. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Do you, uh, my last question is, yeah. is directly related to that. I'm curious who are the authors, critics, writers, books that you find yourself returning to again and again or who have kind of most shaped the way you kind of operate both as a critic and just as a as a human being yeah good question um so i would say that sort of my uh, the person that i just believe to be right about the world and the, the name i mentioned a bunch of times is michelle foucault yeah i just think he gets it. he's i just think he's right and um, <laughs> he's a, a Marxist aphorist who like believes in sexual liberation, but he also looks at power and he's very, um, he's much more unsentimental than a kind of conventional Marxist who believes the, the universe is, is arcing towards a more utopian future. He just doesn't believe that's true. Yeah. Right. And, but he, he has very little points of light as well. And I, I think, so, you know, these theorists who are writing after the Frankfurt school. So I think Michel Foucault on one hand, and I, I think his, his, uh, collected essays by Paul Rabinow, uh, Power Knowledge is a great, oh, yeah. a great collection um, to get into. And then the other one uh, is um, thinking about ethnicity and race, Stuart Hall, and uh, even mm. more broadly, uh, Paul Gilroy. Mm -hmm. Paul Gilroy's book, Postcolonial Melancholia, which was a lecture series in 2006, is a pretty concise book that's really heady, but is a master class in the last 40 or 50 years of the convergence of kind of Marxist and uh, multicultural theory oh, okay. and cosmopolitan yeah. theory. Um, so those have been deeply, deeply influential just in terms of my, in terms of my intellectual operating system. Um, kind of more recently, um, you know, I've been trying to get a, a better sense of, of network culture oh, and yeah. kind of where we're headed in that way. So Rebecca Solnit is someone oh, I'll, yeah. I'll read anything by. Yeah. I read her op-eds and I just think she's a very nuanced historian. She's a beautiful writer. I love her politics. Um, so... I just finished Hope in the Dark. That yeah. had been on my shelf for years. I finally picked that up and read it and finished it like two days ago. Yeah, sometimes I you just her. find the moment for the book, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, there's a guy who really sadly died uh, recently named Mark Fisher, who was a music oh, yeah. in Britain. Yeah. Yeah. He, he writes on depression and on, on music yeah. history. And so um, he's really radically rebooted my operating system and just thinking about history being kind of non linear and the way to write a more a kind of personal essay and think about music and visual culture. Right. So um, those are kind of the big ones. That's great. Thank you so much for this. Was yeah. so fun, and thank you, you know, for your class. And I feel like I've learned so much from these texts. And like you mentioned earlier, I would sometimes kind of read these and have no idea, you know, what is going on, and and now feel like I'll, there are a handful of them that have actually shaped a lot of the work that I'm doing now. So thank you for that. And then thank you for this conversation. This was so great. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It's, it's really a delight to, to, to apply this stuff. Sometimes I worry that it can be a little ivory tower being at an institution. Mm -hmm. And also, and I really am, as I said, I, obviously I'm really ambivalent about design. My, my wife's novels, she's really ambivalent about fashion, right? She loves it, but she also recognizes that it's this global industry. Right. It's really right. troublesome. Right. right. And I think it's okay to have those ambivalences as long as you're sort of aware of them. Um, and so I, you know, I, one of my ambivalences is, you know, I, I'm in this very privileged environment. How can that work? <coughs> and it's really wonderful to talk to designers because I think you all are the ones who are, whether people know it or not, you, you are building the world we inhabit. So it's, yeah. it's really been a pleasure.
This episode was recorded on May 26th, 2017 in Baltimore, Maryland. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.